0: Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of June 26, 2023, here are some top stories. When the new fiscal year begins on July 1st, the Arizona Department of Housing will begin working with the largest budget it's ever had for the state's housing trust fund. As Catherine Davis-Young reports, the spending comes as
1: Arizona faces a growing homelessness crisis. At the Lincoln Family YMCA in downtown Phoenix, there's a common area for the organization's homeless youth program. Diario Lowry is on the couch playing a game of chess before he heads to his new job pushing wheelchairs at the airport.
2: I've just been going with the flow,
3: working, just saving money and where it takes me.
1: Lowry grew up in Richmond, Virginia, but the 22-year-old thought he'd find better job opportunities in another city. So a few months ago, he got a one-way ticket to Phoenix. But without connections here or much money, he ended up spending his first few nights in a homeless shelter. There he found out about YMCA's housing program for people aged 18 to 24. This
2: place is really helpful. I don't know where I would be
4: right now if it wasn't for them.
1: Lowry's timing was really lucky. When he got to Phoenix in April, the dorm-style accommodations for homeless youth had just opened. YMCA came up with the PHX 350 housing program concept just last year, says YMCA's Jenna Cooper. We knew that there was just this rise in the homeless youth population and we knew we could help. So Cooper's team applied for a grant from Arizona's Housing Trust Fund in December. By January, they had $4.7 million from the state.
0: To get the funds that quickly, to be able to allocate the funds, to hire the staff, a matter of months, which is light speed.
1: Just a year or two earlier, that funding wouldn't have been available. Arizona's Housing Trust Fund was established in 1989 to pay for programs to combat homelessness across the state, but for most of the past 15 years, it's been underfunded. During the 2008 recession, lawmakers slashed the fund to just $2.5 million per year. After letting the fund languish for years, the state legislature agreed to direct $60 million from the state budget to the Housing Trust Fund in 2022. And this year, they agreed to a record $150 million. I... um... jumped up and down and, and celebrated. Joan Service is director of the State Housing Department. She thinks lawmakers on both sides of the aisle agreed to the massive spending this year because they're feeling more pressure. According to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, homelessness jumped 23% statewide from 2020 to 2022, in one of the largest increases in the nation. Our housing crisis is impacting everybody. Services Department will allocate The fund. She says she wants to see it spent on a mix of construction projects to make up for the state's housing shortage in the long term and initiatives to get people off the street quickly in the short term. Whether it be sprung structures or transitional shelter options or hotels and motels. Last year's trust fund investment is helping build a shelter for homeless seniors in South Phoenix. It's backing homelessness research at ASU. It's even helping one Arizona company design off-grid homes made from shipping containers. And of course, it paid for the YMCA to open 50 rooms for homeless youth. The flexibility of the housing trust fund is what makes it so useful, says YMCA's Jenna Cooper.
0: Many of the government funds we have here in Arizona are actually federal dollars that are trickled down to state governments or local governments to allocate out. Those come with a lot of strings.
1: Housing trust fund grants can make a broader impact by going out quickly to a wider variety of projects. But how big will the impact be? Service says that's hard to predict.
0: I'd love to be able to say like, oh, we're just
1: going to dramatically end
0: a housing crisis for, you know, X amount of population. But I think there's a lot of barriers stacked up against us.
1: Inflation has increased, new construction projects are facing high interest rates and supply chain delays, and this year's 150 million dollars was just a one-time investment. There's no guarantee lawmakers will spend as much next year. Still, Service says, I'm cautiously optimistic. Knowing she'll have the opportunity to green light more projects like PHX 350 is exciting. Diario Lowry, one of the first participants in that program, is saving money, he's enrolled in a program to learn to be a welder, and he's feeling good about his future. There's a quote he keeps reminding himself of.
2: Don't be afraid to start over because you're not starting from scratch, you're starting from experience.
1: And he says having a safe place to stay these last few months has made starting over in Arizona much less daunting. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In science news. In the last decade, climate change has vaulted to the
0: top of the list of the world's environmental problems. Scientists say that a warming planet may help trigger other events, such as a collapse of ecosystems across the planet, and that a mass extinction could be on the horizon. Ron Dungan has more.
5: Climate change has sparked a number of events across the planet. Melting glaciers, rising oceans, a shrinking Colorado River, wildfires and drought. These things can have a big impact on wildlife, says Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities, a Denver-based nonprofit.
6: There are two intertwined crises happening right now. There's the climate crisis and there's the nature crisis, which some scientists have described as the beginnings of a sixth mass extinction.
5: Researchers say that Earth has experienced five mass extinctions. The most famous collapse took place when the dinosaurs died off. The sixth extinction is different. It's human-caused.
3: So the
6: climate crisis and the nature crisis are forever intertwined in that way. We cannot address one without addressing the other.
5: Climate change once seemed abstract, like something that might happen in the future. Scientists warned that a change of a couple of degrees Celsius would have consequences. But Americans typically don't use the Celsius scale.
4: Well, it's the difference between a 100-degree day and a 105-degree day. So what if every 100-degree day in Arizona became a 105-degree day, and every 105-degree day
6: became a 110-degree day?
5: But wildfire smoke and falling reservoirs across the West got everyone's attention. Climate change has jumped to the front of the line of environmental problems.
1: I think people are becoming more and more aware of of the climate change issue, that it's not something that we need to worry about in the future, that it's happening now, and it's affecting people now. With the biodiversity crisis, I think it's it's a little bit harder for people to see, how does this impact me?
5: That's Margaret Evans, a biologist with the University of Arizona. She says because Americans spend so much time indoors, they've lost touch with what's happening outdoors.
1: So many of us live in cities where we're really disconnected from nature. And the interdependence between people and nature has really been
5: in Arizona, the list of endangered or threatened species includes the jaguar, the California condor, the Sonoran pronghorn, and the black-footed ferret. The cactus ferruginous pygmy owl faces threats from sprawl and climate change. Roads, dams, agriculture, and pollution can push some species to the brink. Poachers in an illegal wildlife trade affect others, says Gary West, a veterinarian at the Phoenix Zoo.
3: I think we're degrading habitat and, you know, wildlife trade and wildlife consumption is probably pushing animals to an extinction, I feel, at a much more rapid rate than maybe climate change
5: is. Researchers struggle to track extinction. For one thing, they haven't identified every species, so we could lose some without ever knowing it. Tigers and pandas make headlines. Bugs or plants don't, yet they can lay the foundation for entire ecosystems. Some scientists say the sixth extinction is part of what could be the next geological age, the Anthropocene. Roy Plotnick, a professor emeritus at the University of Chicago, says some call it the Homogenocene.
3: We have homogenized the world's biota. Things that, you know, if I look out my window where I live. I see lots of house sparrows. Those are not from here. And so animals have been transported around, around yeah, you know, they have pythons in South in, in Florida, for God's sake.
5: The idea of a human caused mass extinction raises moral questions as well as practical ones. What happens if we lose pollinators like bees? What happens if we lose fish? It could take centuries to get to that point, but he says most researchers believe that a mass extinction is underway.
3: But Again, how it compares to the previous extinctions is very hard to say.
5: It's a data comparison problem. Only a fraction of all species make the fossil record. So it's difficult to tease out how the past can inform the present.
3: You know, what will be like in 100 years, I don't know. But I don't think you can say, oh, it's not happening. It is happening. It's just very hard to put it in in exactly the same context as the previous extinctions.
5: By most accounts, we're not there yet. But the line between an abstract future and the present may soon begin to blur. And like climate change, a mass extinction could have consequences. Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news. On Wednesday, the Phoenix City Council was asked to approve more than $2 million to create a new court for people experiencing homelessness. As Christina Estes reports from our downtown bureau, a recent discussion about the proposal became emotional.
2: It's called community court. It's designed like other specialty courts operating in Phoenix. There's one for veterans only and one for people with behavioral health issues. The goal for all three is the same to provide resources so people can overcome underlying issues.
7: I think that the word services sometimes is hidden. People think euphemistically, we're going to give them a pat on the head, a cookie, and an apology. That's not what services looks like.
2: David Ward oversees the city's public defender's office.
7: It's not a cakewalk. These people have to go in, they have to go to counseling, they have to behave, they have to play by the rules. Their lives are very structured for a very long time, sometimes for a couple of years. They have to earn everything they get.
2: Council members of the Public Safety Subcommittee heard the $2.3 million sales pitch. It calls for adding 11 full-time positions to run the court and hiring 10 navigators to work directly with unsheltered people. That involves people already in jail and those referred to the court. The request is in addition to nearly $150 million Phoenix's Office of Homeless Solutions has committed to shelters, supportive housing, and behavioral health services in the past two years. Councilman Jim Waring expressed frustration over what he sees as a lack of progress.
7: It certainly looks a lot worse than it did even a couple of years ago, and certainly dramatically worse than 10 years ago.
2: He wanted assurances that someone who is violent or poses a public safety threat would go through traditional court and not community court. Staff said the most common offenses are low-level like shoplifting and trespassing, and no one accused of assault or domestic violence would be eligible. Waring said he would support that.
7: If it's going to streamline the process and maybe get the services to people faster, it might actually help fine. But it, it is very disheartening to see what's been going on. This isn't about taking away accountability. It's about adding additional accountability.
2: Scott Hall is deputy director for Phoenix's Office of Homeless Solutions.
7: A lot of our folks that are out there suffering on the streets have given up on hope. They've given up on society. They've given up on themselves.
2: He speaks from personal experience.
7: I have a past. I've come out of that past, and I've worked hard to come through that, but I didn't come through that alone. It took a village of people to support me when I just wanted to give up and crawl into a hole. And a lot of our people feel that way. So I'm very encouraged about this opportunity for people.
2: The proposal is modeled after Mesa's community court. Over the past three years, Mesa has welcomed more than 3,000 unsheltered people. Of those 300, or 10 percent, have graduated from the program. Of those graduates, 7% have landed back in community court. After researching MESA's program and seeing success in Phoenix's other specialty courts, Councilwoman Ann O'Brien advocated for a community court.
7: What is important to me in this program is that it is individualized, that people will be screened. They will not get a free pass.
2: She highlighted the case of a Phoenix woman arrested for using drugs.
7: She was thankful for the officers who arrested her. She was thankful for the system um, and thankful to be able to graduate from that program so that she could return to being the mom her kids deserved.
2: Phoenix's Community Corps might require someone to attend counseling, get a state ID, or apply for food stamps. They could also get help reconnecting with friends or family. Vice Mayor Yasmin Ansari said customized plans will be key.
1: You know, one of those steps could be an individual adhering to securing stable housing. I think we've seen that wraparound support at our shelter, whether it's the Washington Street Shelter or some of the other new ones that we have, has been
0: very effective.
2: Several community groups support the new court. Jeff Spellman with the Violence Impact Project said trespassing and drug use cause real harm to neighborhoods.
5: It creates the cycle of uh, crime where people are just coming right back out on the street and nothing's done. Yet that that visit to jail for a day really does nothing to change the situation. So this, this model we know will work.
2: Graduates could see their cases dismissed, a charge reduced, or a sentence suspended. Those who drop out or fail will return to regular court. If the council approves, community court could be in session in January. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: Now from KJZZ Original Productions, here's the latest installment in the show series called Saguaro Land. Here's co-host Lauren Gilger.
6: Sun and sand, sagebrush and tumbleweed, rolling mountains and giant cactus. From our armchair seat in the sky, we see Arizona's famous Valley of the Sun, Phoenix. Camelback Mountain is outlined on the horizon...
4: Today we're looking at the Sonoran Desert through the lens of design.
6: Any really talented architect or good architect and knows what they're doing, listens to place more than anything. And this place really does have a, you know, it has a lot to say.
4: That's Brian Farling, one of the principals at Jones Studio, an architecture firm here in the valley that's made a name for itself as the place to go for modern, sustainable design inspired by the Sonoran Desert. The studio was founded in 1979 by Eddie Jones. He followed Frank Lloyd Wright and Paolo Soleri to the desert in search of the Sonoran landscape they prized. He was joined by his brother Neil a few years later, and they grew from there. Farling joined them straight out of school in 1998. A kid who grew up in Pennsylvania, he'd visited a cousin at the University of Arizona and fell in love with the desert.
6: Well, I really found that I love just sunny days and the sculptural qualities of, particularly down in Tucson, Saguaro Monument West and the mountains and, you know, just the sort of beauty of of the raw desert.
4: I paid a visit to Farling recently to get a tour of one of the best places to experience what they do, their office in downtown Tempe. And we began the conversation with, what else? The sun.
6: The sun here is sort of very unique. And you could, you could say that about anywhere. But here, you know, we have like 85% of the days are full of sun. Mm. And so if you have, if you're living in a space, that amount of light and the quality of that light really just sort of affects your environment. It affects your everyday sort of everything that you do. You know, this space that we're sitting in right now, this conference room with the courtyard next to it, I just think it's a great example of connecting to that light because you have, you have that consistency of the light, but it's also brutal. So you have to, you have to be very careful and very deliberate with when buildings protect spaces from light mm-hmm. and then when they open up to it. So here we're opened up to the north with a tree and the light is just, you know, dappled and beautiful and not direct ambient and it fills up this room. But we have the protected walls on the west and the south, you know, sort of keeping the, the damaging, you know, the more brutal aspects of the sun in check. Yeah.
4: So you're thinking about the light a lot, not just in how it, you know, heats us all summer and like kills us, but also in the ways that it's beautiful. It's, there's a there's a double edged sword there.
6: Yeah, the quality of light here is just remarkable. I mean, you know, if you travel, you rarely get to experience blue sky as much as you do here. And as long as you're protected from the oven that we all know summer to be here, I, I find it invigorating. It's just, you know, it's just like fills me with happiness.
4: So the sun, obviously, and the light here, first thing, right, when you think about architecture and how to build for this place, what else comes to mind for you?
6: Water. Mm-hmm. This firm is very much obsessed with water in the desert and how we as architects can reinforce the fact that it's, it's so precious and we have to be this amazing stewards. Yeah. I'm very much obsessed with water, and, and I, feel like, I feel like here, you know, unlike most larger cities, or really most settlements across the earth, you're usually adjacent to a body of water. Think about the cities, you know, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, cities in Europe. There's usually a river or a lake or an ocean Here we're sort of out in the middle, you know, of this beautiful desert disconnected to our water. I feel like, you know, that level of connectedness with our water is something that we have to do, just like those other cities are connected to their lakes and rivers and have that sort of, you know, very visceral, immediate connection with how much water they have and where it comes from.
4: So when you're designing for that, for that appreciation of water and sort of recognizing that disconnection, what does that look like?
6: So it can look like, it can look like a lot of things. There's a, lo- there's a lot of history of indigenous people being just very smart with, with capturing water. So it can, it can be deliberate like that where water comes off the roof into a barrel and you collect it. Yeah. But can, it can also be experiential. So there's, there's a project, the Mariposa Land Port of Entry is sort of the extreme example of, of capturing water. So we have a million-gallon water harvesting system that irrigates the 54-acre site.
4: And that, this is, we should explain, a port of entry to the U.S. from Mexico and down on the border.
6: Right. The General Services Administration is a project, very high aspirations for making very you know, important and powerful architecture, a welcoming gesture, believe it or not, a welcoming gesture to people coming across the border. So the design was focused around this idea of what does that gesture look like and how do you make it meaningful and dignified? So we thought if we make an oasis, if you enter into a a desert oasis, a garden, that's a very human thing and, and a very powerful way to greet people and for their experience and for all the people that are working there. So how do you do a garden in the desert? How do you do an oasis in the desert? You have some kind of water source and hopefully it's not connected to the city plumbing system. Mm -hmm. So every building down there and lots of the parking areas and roadways drain to specific collection points Mm -hmm. and there's, there's some sort of very deliberate sculptural water scupper mm. that celebrates when it rains and reminds everybody there that water is precious and that it's, it's feeding the garden that everybody's enjoying on this port of entry. Mm.
4: So you're gathering the water that comes down. This is not water features in the sense that like we're going to put a fountain here. It's natural water.
6: It, it is natural water, but certainly fountains like you think of in Las Vegas and, and just very sort of over the top fountains are one thing but as just in this courtyard right out yeah
4: there's one right outside here we have a
6: little dribbling fountain that that sound of water as you enter you know and as you experience that space at mariposa we actually keep the water that's in the tank clean by aerating it through some small fountains that are in this gathering courtyard so that sound i mean we all know that sound it's it's a very human sound and everybody loves it
4: so that's really interesting because I would have never thought of architecture and thought of sound, right? And thought of like that sort of aspect of the senses. It sounds like you're really working with all five senses here.
6: We try to. Yeah. I mean, I think aspirationally, I think all architecture, the entire built environment in the Colorado River watershed, southwest, should be reminding everybody that lives here how precious water is all the time. And 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 those are moments those are moments to Define what desert architecture is because you know, because if, if the architecture is formed and shaped and deliberate with the way it 's dealing with water that 's something that 's extremely unique to this place, and so that, that is a defini- I think that 's a definition of, or sort of a ground rule for you know, doing desert design. Mm-hmm.
4: And this space in particular, like this office that we're sitting in here, is obviously designed in this way. Do you want to go take a look?
6: Yeah, sure.
4: We made our way into the main office, a long, narrow room with a folded, angular ceiling. And I was introduced to the firm's founder, Eddie Jones. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet, to meet you. you. What is the, the thought behind this ceiling? It's sort of It's got a, an interesting sort of pattern to it.
7: It's structural. You see that unusual block wall outside. Well, it's structurally unstable. So the steel tube on top connects to the steel forks, which connect back to the building column line that you see here. And then that, these folds in the ceiling kick all the lateral forces back to the center of the building. Now it's obvious. It seems
4: clear now, yes, but it's beautifully done. And there's such a use of light there too, right?
7: Yeah. Well, we prefer colored light over paint because colored light will dissipate the color as opposed to a, a sharp paint line. And when you talk about desert architecture, you know people immediately think about how to, you know, passively cool and perhaps even harvest rainwater, maybe Brian talked about that. But, you know, we always have sunshine and so putting a building in a garden is perhaps easier here than it would be up in a northern climate. And the other quality of the desert is the light. We're always guaranteed light, so we put it to work. In the winter,
6: this folded ceiling, there's a clear story strip of glass up high on the south. The light comes in, and this red floor is up on the mezzanine as well. Light comes in and bounces, and we always have this pink ceiling in the winter. And it starts to go away this time of the year because the sun's much higher you know, in the sky.
7: It's inspiring to work in this building. Generally speaking, it's inspiring to work in architecture. And that's why we try to create architecture for all of our clients and all of the users that uh, are going to be impacted by our buildings. You know, everybody deserves to be inspired, right?
4: That was my conversation with Eddie Jones and Brian Farling of Jones Studio.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news, Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn says public schools that allow English language learners to use the 50-50 dual language model are violating state law and risk losing state funding. As Bridget Dowd reports from our Education Desk, advocates for the
1: program are fighting back. In 2019, the State Board of Education approved four instruction models for ELL students, including a dual-language option that allows students to learn for half the day in English and the other half in a different language. Lucinda Brunencant is a principal at a school that uses that model. She says if Horn gets what he wants, students whose first language is English but want to learn Spanish could enroll in dual-language classes no problem. But students who speak only Spanish would have to pass a test before enrolling in the same program. Putting a test before them is discrimination. It is not fair. It is not right. And I plead that you really think about this and what you're doing to our kids. Horn says the dual language model violates Proposition 203. The measure passed by voters in 2000 requires ELL students to be taught only in English. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ
0: News, Phoenix. In Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. A new investigation shows Arizona makes it uniquely hard for tribes to get water. Here's Lauren Gilger. For years, the Navajo Nation has been
4: locked in contentious negotiations with the state of Arizona over water. With unreliable groundwater in much of the state, tribes often have to turn to outside sources for water. And the drawn-out negotiations to get it have left wells and water tanks for tribal communities empty, farms and businesses delayed. Now, a new investigation from ProPublica and High Country News shows Arizona is unique in its efforts to delay access and extract concessions from many tribes in the region on these water negotiations. Umar Farouk is one of the reporters on the story, and I spoke with him more about it. Beginning with the Dilcon Medical Center, a $128 million facility that is sitting empty on the Navajo Nation because there's not enough clean water available
3: to open it. We were visiting and meeting with Navajo folks in in, uh, a few months ago on the reservation and we hadn't even heard about this hospital and we've seen a lot of other kind of projects that were being delayed by a lack of reliable water. And we heard about this hospital and the Dilcon Medical Center, it turns out, has been sitting there for a year now. The construction is done and it's a badly needed hospital. It's in a pretty rural part of the reservation and the people that live in that area have to drive off the reservation, they have to spend a whole day going to see primary care doctors and specialists, and Mm. uh, there's no emergency room nearby, there's no pharmacy nearby. Uh, You know, I was quite surprised at first to learn that this kind of huge project, partially kind of federally funded project, uh, was sitting there and they literally couldn't open it because they rely on groundwater and the groundwater wells that they had hoped to use turned out to be the water was too salty to be used in a hospital.
4: Hmm. So tell us a little bit about the background here and what's led to this. Like this goes back more than a century, it sounds like.
3: Yeah. You know, at least uh, since 1908, we've had a Supreme Court precedent that says that when the federal government creates a reservation, they need to provide enough water for that reservation to serve as a permanent homeland. So this precedent's been there for a long time. And uh, tribes around the country have struggled to secure the rights through that precedent to water that they need. It wasn't until kind of the 1970s that tribes in the southwest and in Arizona uh, got organized enough and had enough legal resources to try to push for that in court and also try to push for that at the political level. Mm-hmm. And, and that process is still ongoing for half of the tribes in Arizona. Um, We're talking about, you know, tribes like the Navajo Nation that have more than 400,000 members. Mm. So this is a huge number of people. These people are uh, citizens of their tribal nations, but they're also citizens of the state of Arizona. And so a lot of them told us that, you know, it's very frustrating because the state of Arizona seems to treat them as foreigners, as people who are not are not Arizona citizens Mm -hmm. And they see it as sort of a, a competition with them.
4: So, you did a pretty comprehensive analysis of this and found that Arizona, in negotiating these water sell- settlements, seems to be unique. Like they seem to go out of their way to delay these kind of negotiations to make it, you know, harder for tribes to access reliable sources of water. Tell us, you know, what's different about the way Arizona approaches this?
3: Well, what happened after the 1970s is that. Other states in the West, you know, they, they saw this problem and they came up with special kind of procedures to deal with tribal water water rights. Some states put together special water courts to deal with, with this litigation. Some of them made special committees. Uh, these committees held public hearings over the last few decades. Fairly more transparent process than what Arizona was going through. So to start with, the whole water negotiation process in Arizona, we found, is far more secretive than it is in other states in the West. And a lot Mm. of people that talk to us, you know, they would start off by telling us, oh, you know, I can't talk too much about the negotiations because there's state laws that preclude me from, from talking about things like this. So Mm. to start off with that, that's kind of the atmosphere in Arizona, that tribes have to deal with a lot of other stakeholders, stakeholders that have a lot more money. You know, we're talking about some of the world's biggest mining corporations, some of the biggest utility companies in the West and tribes have to deal with them largely behind closed doors. And when we looked into it, it turned out that behind these closed doors, some very powerful personalities uh, in Arizona, people who had kind of been part of this revolving door between these corporate interests and Congress and you know state interests, were extracting uh, concessions from tribes that no one else in the country was asking other tribes to to agree to.
4: I think a pretty apt example of this is you talk about the state's pretty recent attempt actually to make their renewal of casino licenses for tribes contingent on these kind of water deals. Is that right?
3: That's right. And as late as 2020, folks in the state legislature put together this bill um, which said that any tribe that wanted to get new gaming licenses or wanted to renew licenses need to first settle its, its water claims uh, with the state. And on the face of it, that's a pretty crazy law and it thankfully didn't pass. But it was another indication of the lengths that some of the leaders in Arizona were willing to go to to make sure that they had leverage against, mm-hmm. against tribes.
4: How has the sort of drought-stricken state of the Colorado River played into this as well? Like, there are intense negotiations between all stakeholders, you know, basically over who gets what water as the river dries up. Is that making this all more contentious?
3: It's adding a real kind of layer of alarm to a lot of the tribal leaders uh, that we, we talked to. A lot of them have told us that they're worried that even if they have water rights that are settled, they're worried that the federal government and the states will toss that precedent out and, and cut water that should be going to them. Some of the tribes that don't have any water rights settled now are are saying that we haven't been able to sit down with folks from the state of Arizona uh, to even talk about water rights. And all the tribes kind of say, you know, they don't have an equal uh, share at this table that's, kind of, you know, to, to come up with a plan to deal with the drought. Tribes are the last people that seem to be thought of, the last people that, folks invite to meetings. And if they're invited, they're kind of just given kind of a rubber stamp. One or two tribal leaders keep getting invited over and over again. uh, And then, you know, state and federal officials can make these sort of grand sweeping statements like, look, we're, we're involving the tribes in this whole drought planning, when in fact it's not true.
4: Last question for you, Umar. Did Arizona officials have anything to say about this? Did they defend their approach?
3: on the record they didn't defend their approach to us and we thought that was that was quite strange too um we you know largely had to go with policies that tribal leaders told us were were being uh you know enacted by the state and in the last few years what the state has said publicly there was a lot of optimism you know a few months ago among tribal leaders that there was a new governor in town you know it was a democratic uh, governor, mm-hmm. that things would change. Um, and, you know, during the election campaigning, the governor, as well as, you know, some other you know state officials and, and people that made it to Congress had campaigned on this whole idea of making sure tribes have access to clean water. But the political situation in Arizona doesn't seem to have, have changed. It seems like non-natives in Arizona are still in, in political leadership are still seeing this as a competition with the tribes.
4: All right. We'll leave it there. Umar Farouk is the Ansel Payne fellow with ProPublica, one of the reporters on this investigation. Umar, thank you for joining us and telling us about it. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you.
0: And finally, in Fronteras News, Customs and Border Protection has released a video showing a fatal shooting by Border Patrol agents on tribal land last month. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports Tohono O'odham Nation tribal member Raymond Mattia was shot nine times outside his home. In CBP's video, Matia is seen tossing a sheath knife on the ground in front of him. A Border Patrol agent yells at him to take his hands out of his pockets and opens fire seconds after he does. Ivan Navarez is Matia's niece.
3: The fact of the matter is that he stood there and from our point of view, it looks like he was complying because they said to drop his weapon. That's why he uh, handed over his hunting knife in its sheath.
0: The video shows Mattia falling to the ground after being shot. An agent advancing towards him is heard saying he still has a gun in his hand, but the video never shows a gun on Mattia's person. A cell phone is seen lying next to him. The video shows footage from only four body cameras, despite there being 10 agents there that night. The case is under investigation by the FBI and tribal police. Alicia Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson.